This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts. She talks about the influences in her life, her political career, and her advocacy work. Her book is called Persist. She's interviewed by Washington Post White House reporter Annie Linsky. Thank you, Senator, for being here. Um, I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, Me too. <laughs> I um, I read I read your book Persist. Um, have it here. Um, and I um, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about you know um, you've written a number of political books in your career. Um, this is this is your third, but um, you approach this one very differently mm-hmm. than the first two. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what you were trying to achieve with this book that was distinct from the other two sort of political books that, that you've done. So I think of this book and the way it was created with real immediacy. Um, think of what's happened to us in the last year. We've had a global pandemic. Uh, we have had a racial reckoning, an armed insurrection. We have a new president elected by more than 7 million vote margin. And we have already passed the largest relief package in our history. And now we've got this space in front of us, all of this chaos around us. And it's time for us to make the decision about what kind of a nation we're going to be. And for me, it's about the the changes we need to make and how we persist in fighting for those changes. I separated this book into six parts um, about what I bring to the fight. Uh, A mother, a teacher, a planner a fighter, a learner, and a woman. And then I tell the stories about how policy touched me, touched the people I love very personally, and why it is that from that that personal um, engagement effect from policy that we go into into making the policies that will shape our future. That's what this book is about. Think of it this way, Annie. It's about the next hundred days. What do we do next? All the stories of why it matters and what we do next. Well, I really did love how it was organized by those chapters. And I'm very impressed that you can kind of rattle them off like that. I, you know, I found it almost as if you were explaining, we've known you as a fighter. The last two books, I think, had the word fighter in the title. Um, and one of your chapters is a fighter, but you really do talk about yourself as a mother and a teacher. But then you also brought in the stories of four other people um, who were on the campaign trail with you at various points um, uh, during the 2020 primaries. Um, and can you talk a little bit about your decision to highlight the people like, you know, Congresswoman Porter and Congresswoman Presley, um, because I, those moments were, it was so interesting to see how they had intersected with your lives. Mm-hmm. I was curious mm-hmm. why you, you chose to highlight the four of them. Okay. So this is, it's going to be a little bit of a spoiler alert here uh, on, uh, on some of this, but I, I start the second chapter talking about 
being a teacher and talking about what it's like in the classroom. And some people know I was a special education teacher uh, many, many years ago before I got pregnant and then got fired. Um, But how I ended up going back to law school and but I couldn't stay away from teaching. So I end up teaching instead of little people, I end up teaching much taller people. Uh, I had had four to six year olds in special ed. Now I was teaching uh, tall people in law school. And so I set up a class and what a class is about uh, and actually tell the story of uh, first day in one of my bankruptcy classes at Harvard and walk through what it's like. A different kind of class, right? It is a kind of different class. That's right. I am what is known as a Socratic teacher. Uh, Among some, I'm known as a hardcore Socratic teacher, Uh, meaning I don't stand up and lecture. It's always about pushing the students through questions to get them to connect the pieces, to stretch their thinking, to figure out how to do the analysis themselves. So anyway, I give the explanation of all this, uh, the, the demonstration, tell about a class. And that class turns out to be Katie Porter's class. And uh, she's in it. And in fact, you know how I know I got it right? When I wrote it, I then sent it to Katie. <laughs> Just, oh, yeah, you bet. It's known as fact-checking yourself. And and sent it to Katie. And uh, Katie and I not only had some fun talking about the particular exchanges that are in this, but also about some of the other students and what they've gone on to do, what Katie remembered, what I remembered. But part of it is... What I see is the heart of teaching. Teachers invest in the future. You don't stand in front of a classroom because it's all about you. You stand in front of a classroom because it's all about the people in front of you. It's all about those students and what they can do, what they will be able to do over time. And... So that whole chapter then moves into the question of, as a nation, if we're going to build a strong, robust future, we need a well-educated workforce. I mean, just that's what it's going to take in the 21st century. And having people who come at things, big problems from lots of different angles, powerfully important. So I talk a lot about the investments we make and the investments we fail to make in educating young people. And um, so it becomes a big part of policy. Being a teacher, it's a big part of policy. It also gave me a chance to talk about the people who co-chaired my presidential campaign and, of course, One of the three women who co-chaired was Katie, uh, a good Iowa farm girl before she became a congresswoman from California, who got out on the stump for me. And God bless her. Talk about why she was in this fight. 
these these individuals who have intersected with you have got on to do quite well. I, I'll say um, another one was um, is now Secretary um, Deb Holland. And I, I know. I mean, you sort of peeled back the curtain a little bit in this book and talked a little bit about sort of the inner process of what it's like when people are thinking about running for office, when they are, you know, when they are, are going to Washington for meetings. And you talk a little bit about this meeting that um, where you, it doesn't seem like it was the first time you'd met um, Secretary Holland, but it was sort of a very meaningful exchange with her. And I just, I wonder if you'll sort of be a, uh, provide a little bit of that color here today, because it was just, it's just such an evocative story, I thought. Yeah. Well, so, so here I am uh, in Washington and I've been invited. I looked down at my schedule. I've been invited to go over to a group that's getting together and Deb Holland will be the guest speaker. Uh, this woman who is running uh, for Congress from New Mexico. Uh, if she wins, she will be the first, or as it turns out, one of the two uh, first Native American women to be elected to Congress. So I know Deb, I know about Deb. We've talked on the phone and had some uh, meetings. Uh, and I know her background generally uh, as an organizer, uh, as, as a fighter. Deb is a fighter. Uh, so I show up and what these events are like, Annie, is people from all the different groups that might have an interest, environmental groups and, and uh women's groups and um, uh, uh, education groups, um, uh, labor unions. There are representatives from all of these groups. They're crammed into a space that's way too small. Why this happens every time, I don't know. This is obviously pre-COVID because everybody's breathing on everybody. I think about this in retrospect. Uh, there's a little bit of food out and uh, uh, these are usually kind of done on the cheap server. You know, there's soda and so on. And people are all kind of crammed together and lots of noise because everybody knows everybody except the person who's been invited to give the talk. And so I'm in this room. They call on Deb and people kind of scrunch back a little bit more to create a space around her. And then, man, it's, it's a lot like baseball. I describe it like baseball. Only in this case, everybody is throwing fastballs, and there's only one batter. There are multiple pitchers, but just one batter. The batter's dead. And the fastballs are not just coming from the pitcher's mound. They're coming from everywhere. So people want to know where you are on some technical part of the military budget and want to know where you are on federal lands. And the people who are asking these questions, they know their stuff. So doing a kind of, uh, it doesn't cut it. And it's important for the person who's answering the questions, quite frankly, not just to get the policy answer right, but to show you're going to be somebody who can actually run a big competitive campaign because what's going to happen after this meeting is all those folks are going to go back to their respective groups and they're either going to say, you've got to be kidding me, or they're going to say, ah, oh, we want in. This is, I'm, I'm ready to go. So Deb is fielding, bam, 
bam, and she's hitting them good, solid policy shots. And then she gets a question about childcare. And all of a sudden she changes. She's not the tough as nails labor organizer, the I'm ready to go on every question. It's almost like she's transported back in time for what it was like when she graduated from school, very pregnant, had this baby. By the way, Deb, Deb had come, I should have said this, from a military family, did not go straight to college. She got a job after high school. She'd made the decision to go back to college. She ends up, she graduates, she has this tiny little baby, and her life becomes trying to get her feet under herself financially, be independent, and take care of this little baby daughter. So every choice she's making is a choice shaped around not having childcare mm-hmm. and not being able to afford childcare. And Deb quite openly talks about the periods in her life when she had to couch surf, mm-hmm. uh, the periods in her life where it was her friends who helped keep her fed and her daughter, uh, food stamps. And she talks about how she wanted her daughter to be in preschool. This is as, as uh, the child gets older. And Deb couldn't afford it, but she thought it was a good experience. By this time, Deb is doing her own at-home salsa business. And, and you know the baby has been crawling in around under her legs. Now the baby's up toddling around. Everything she does, she brings her, her baby along and she decides she wants, wants her daughter to have the same experience other children are having of this preschool, pre-K kind of thing, uh, two-year-olds together. So Deb goes to the place near her and says, I can't afford it, but I'll clean the rooms. And she becomes the cleaning lady so that she can get her daughter enrolled. And so she talks about, we need universal childcare in America. We need childcare available for every mother to be able to finish her education, to be able to get a job. We need childcare for every baby to be able to be out and with others. And we need childcare for every childcare worker to raise the wages of all our childcare workers and preschool teachers. I stood there and listened to Deb. I'm kind of pressed back up against the wall. And I thought, my heart to your heart, you're in this fight from the heart. It's personal to you the same way it's personal to me. I want you to win this race and the race after that and the race after that and the race after that. And she did win the congressional race. And when I put together my first big child care bill, my co-sponsor in the House, no surprise, was Deb Holland, ready to go. And I, I think of this as Deb and I both get a chance to fight for things that are personal and that matter to all of us. 
Yeah, it was a very moving story um, to hear uh, um, that connection that you have with her. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just sort of to update us, how is that going? How is that the child care piece of it going? Of course, Democrats are moving a fairly um, large agenda right now through Congress. So and let's do the good news. Okay. <laughs> let's do the good news. Last week, the president of the United States uh, addressed the nation. And what did he talk about? He said, we got to get this country going. America's back. We're going to be in it. And he said, and that means infrastructure, roads, bridges, communications, and we need child care. Mm-hmm. Child care. We also need care for our seniors. And and I really do think of this, this is child care. It, I don't care that you want to call it uh, infrastructure, roads and bridges and infrastructure, caregiving economy, name it what you want. But if we want people to be able to go to work mm-hmm. and look, we had a child care crisis long before the pandemic came. And then the pandemic has wiped out millions of women, women who lost their jobs, women who didn't lose their jobs but tried to work from home with no child care, women who are trying to work part-time, women who couldn't take on promotions and more responsibility. Without better child care, one of the consequences of this pandemic will be to set back millions of women, not just for the next year or two, but clear into their retirement. Yeah. We got to change that one, Annie, and and we have a chance. So that's the good news. The president has already said four hundred and twenty-five billion for child care uh, and early childhood education. Which, let's be clear, there's no bright line between those. They are related to each other and deeply intertwined. Now, you know my job, and that is to pull for more. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to take about seven hundred billion okay. over ten years in order to get universal child care, high quality, available. Half of America is living in a child care desert, uh, and affordable. More than half the states in the country, a year of child care costs more than a year at public university. So we got to make this investment, and then. We get what this country should be about, opportunities, real opportunities for everyone. And that means mamas, daddies, and our babies, and our child care workers. Um, one of the, um, one of the, well, I, I, first of all, I want to make sure I ask you, um, the, the title of the book is, um, is, of course, Persist. It's a um, word that has been associated with you for, um, not forever, it was a, a fairly recent term. Um, I, it, it came from um, Leader McConnell, uh, Minority Leader McConnell, speaking on the Senate floor and scolding you. Um, I'm, I've always been curious, have you, have, have you ever talked to McConnell about about that moment and about um, his decision to, you know, scold a, a Democratic female senator and and um, and as he, he said, um, he, he was upset that you were breaking some sort of House or Senate norm and said, nevertheless, she persisted. Right. I I was reading 
Coretta Scott King's letter to back then to the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, about Jeff Sessions when the Senate was debating whether or not Jeff Sessions, a sitting senator, should be confirmed as Attorney General of the United States. Um, no, he's, he's never said a word to me about it. We exchange pleasantries, but no, we've never well, talked about it. If you had a chance to sit down and talk to him about that moment, what would you say? That, think about what I was trying to do. I was reading a letter that Coretta Scott King had written from the heart about Jeff Sessions, talking about what it had been like when he had been the U.S. attorney in Alabama and about, the letter is, she talks about in this letter about how he frightened elderly black voters, how he bullied people and how in her view, he should not be entrusted with a federal judgeship, which is what they were talking about at that moment. I couldn't think of a more relevant piece of evidence to bring forward on the question of Jeff Sessions as Attorney General, the number one law enforcement officer in our nation, than to hear directly from Coretta Scott King about how he treated people of color and how he treated our basic democracy. And for Mitch McConnell to decide that of all the things that go on in the Senate, that that, the reading of Coretta Scott King's letter, was the thing that must be stopped. Understand, when he moved to have me expelled from the Senate, not just not just make her sit down for a little while. I didn't get just a timeout for a little while. I was actually barred from the floor of the Senate so long as debate on Jeff Sessions went forward. I could not come back until the debate was over and I could vote and we had moved on to the next topic. And it was, it was like this, to me, this huge warning that everything we already saw that looked like it was coming unglued with Donald Trump running for office and then Donald Trump as president and Mitch McConnell embracing the the racism, embracing the um, hatefulness that he was willing to bring that onto the floor of the Senate. Um, I just, I felt like it was so wrong. And and to this day, yeah. I feel like it was wrong. It was very wrong. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but but um, you know, that's the thing, Annie. He was wrong. But I didn't stay down. 
and neither did did anybody else. That was that was the fun when I ran for president of seeing those people show their nevertheless she persisted tattoos. Yeah. You know, on a shoulder blade, on an ankle. Uh and that's it. Man, hand us hand a, hand us a persist and we'll turn it into a tattoo. <laughs> Well, you certainly did turn that around. That yep. the joke in Washington has always been that Mitch McConnell is owed royalties by you. For this. <laughs> He's getting not a penny, not a penny, no. <laughs> not even two cents, not um, even two cents. But I digress. Um, one of the um, uh, one of the things about this book that I found to be so interesting was the extent to which you grappled with gender. Um, you know, not only uh, during the presidential campaign. But you sort of grappled with um, it through, throughout your life. Um, uh, but uh, talking about the presidential campaign, there is one section, and um, in the book you write about how you have a text chain with other Democratic senators that I would love to see one day. Um, but <laughs> but I too have a text chain with um, other uh, female uh, political reporters. Mm-hmm. And, um, we were all uh, there's one um, paragraph from your from your book over the weekend. Um, one of my colleagues was reading your book and she started, she sent this paragraph around. And so we all, we're all commenting on it. Um, so I wanted to just read it to you and I hope that you could kind of unpack this. Okay. This is a, this is a moment where you are, um, you're thinking about getting into the democratic primary and you're, you're pretty sure you're going to do it. And I think maybe I believe that you've decided in your mind, in your heart that you're going to do it. And you're sort of thinking about, what it's going to take and and what it's going to look like, um, and you write. Um, it's a little. It's a few sentences. Uh, so bear with me. But you write. I would do more. I would put my unflinching determination on display, sounding the call for a fight against some of the most powerful people and corporations in our nation. I would also put my full heart on display, telling stories that only a woman could tell. I would do pinky promises with little girls and give hugs to their mothers and grandmothers. I would fill up every space with ideas and energy and optimism. I would hope that my being a woman wouldn't matter so much. And please, 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 I would show everyone that a woman could win. Yes. Um, could a woman have won? I sure hoped so. I wrote what I felt. I was running as all of me, being a woman, but also being a policy wonk and also being a fighter, also being a teacher, uh, also being a mother, also being a planner. I wanted all of that to be how I ran, what I ran, what I brought to the primary, to the general, if I could make it that far, and to be president of the United States. I wanted to bring it all and to give it all. And that's that's what I did. I gave it everything I had. Do you think in some ways and maybe not even um, consciously, that you were trying to outwork sexism. It's a good way to put it, Annie. 
Um, you know, I, I didn't, it's not that I thought about that. I mean, maybe. Um, the way I thought of it is that that 2020 election is, was so monumental, so powerfully important, and that I needed to bring everything I could bring. And ultimately, you know what I did. I brought 81 plans to it, you know, juicy, glorious, creative, interesting, detailed, not always fully finished, but mostly plans, blueprints, ways we could go forward to build an America that wasn't just about billionaires and giant corporations and big donors, to build an America that was about all of our kids, about all of us, that it all went in the same direction. And, and that's what I wanted to do. I, I put it all out there. And I got up every single morning for 14 months and I got to get out there and get on stage in front of a crowd in a cafeteria or a high school auditorium or sometimes on a giant built stage in front of 20,000 plus people to make the argument, to make the fight, to say, this is who we can be. And to ask people to join me and help make this happen. Yeah. Um, well, I was there for quite a lot of it and it was, I know uh, you were, <laughs> there was a lot of joy. It was, t- it was late nights, um, but a lot of people, um, the crowds, uh, at your campaign events were some of the biggest, I believe of the entire, between you and um, Bernie Sanders, the entire field, um, even at the very end, um, which was really quite stunning to see, um, uh, but uh, turning back to the uh, book for a minute, um, the the other piece of it that I um, I had not th- thought about and was quite new to me when, um, when I read it, you, you told this story before, but, um, you know, so many women right now in this moment have, you know, reckoned with and thought about um, sort of moments, not of just sort of the sort of se- um, sexism that exists in, in the culture, but very inappropriate exchanges that they have had with with men that they work with or that they um, interact with. Um, you have told this um, story before about a very uncomfortable exchange that you had with a professor at the University of Houston when you were a young law professor. Um, but for me, reading the book, what, one of the things that I found so interesting is that you talked about not only the moment that you, that it happened, and I believe it was forty years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's about right. But and but you, so you write about that, but also the kind of the long arm that this mm-hmm. individual had, and the the the, the longer term impact that I think that um, isn't discussed as much when people when an incident like this happens, particularly so far back in the past. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. About here you are. Um, you know, one of the the nation's brightest bankruptcy lawyers, um, you know, rising to the very top of your field. And this this man who you had this very uncomfortable exchange with still is present in your life in some mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. So let me let me start a little bit at the beginning. Yes, that's probably. And and that is I went into teaching in law school when there weren't very many women teaching in law school. There were some, 
but not very many. And I didn't have a fancy diploma. I, I loved my law school, but it was not putting a lot of people into teaching. And I, it was hard for me to get that first teaching job. But Gene was the person who hired me. He was the head. And I was so excited to have that teaching job. God, I wanted to do so well. And I worked hard and I was trying to learn it and trying to learn how to manage the classroom and trying to learn how to manage the scholarship and trying to learn how to manage faculty politics. But that the real test, number one, is getting hired, but number two is getting tenure. It's that you're going to be up uh, within three years, four years in law schools, five years, right in there. And the faculty is going to vote. And they're going to decide either you made it, in which case you have a lifetime appointment at this school if you want to stay, or you didn't, in which case you're out the door. You're just gone. There's not like some alternative here. Jean went from being the person who hired me to the head of my tenure committee. So he came to my classes. He dropped by my office. And what he said about me, how he described me, was hugely important for how the faculty would see me, or at least that's certainly what I believed. And um, I tell the story about being in his office one day, he called me into his office. Uh, He'd been drinking, uh, uh, making inappropriate remarks, and ultimately ends up chasing me around the table. I make it out of the room, but the question was never about whether I could outrun him. The question is one of power, as it is for so many women. And I talk about going back to my office and just not sure what will happen next. What what happens the next time he shows up? What will he say about me? Did I just demonstrate that I don't know how to get along or take a joke or fill in the blank. And um, another faculty member, uh, another very senior man, later said that he had told me, don't tell anyone. But I knew not to tell anyone. I knew it. I knew it my bones. Mm-hmm. And, this, this would not end well. So I never said anything publicly that I didn't go to HR. It it really never even crossed my mind. And Gene never spoke of it. He'd still come to my class. He would uh, uh, talk about my scholarship. Uh, uh, I'd see him at lunch things. And then when I left the University of Houston, I got a job offer to go to the University of Texas. He'd call me. And um, his nickname for me was She-Wolf. And uh, I'd pick up the phone and he'd say, She-Wolf. And I'd think, oh. What was that about? Do you think he was referring to that moment? I don't know. Did he um, tell you that after the moment? But he would call and my heart would race and I'd make it through the phone conversation. And 
every job I got, somewhere someone would mention, oh yeah, and we talked to Gene back at University of Houston, and he said you're a really good scholar, or, you know, you're, which, that's great. And, and look, lots of women have it a whole lot worse. They have been uh, harassed or molested by men that are set on revenge. But Jean, as far as I know, always said nice things about me. But it's also that deep reminder in your brain, he has power. Mm -hmm. He has power, more power than you have, and he still has it. And then what happened through the years is it got to where when he would call, my heart didn't race anymore. Yeah. I got I got good at what I did. I yeah. got stronger at what I did. I got to where I was giving advice to other people. I was I was making this. And finally he called me. Uh as as I talk about in the book, he called me and said he was dying. Mm. And I start to make a sympathetic and he's no. He doesn't want any part of that. That's who he was. He had this mean gene persona that he held on to. And um, he said he wanted me to speak at his funeral. I said, no. And he's, he pushed me on it. And I said, if I do, I'm going to talk about what happened. And he laughed. Wow. And so I did speak at his funeral. And I told it in a funny stand-up because it was part of affirming he doesn't have power over me anymore. I am my own person. And it's funny, it was about 20 years after it had happened, about 20 years later, the Me Too movement takes off. And I tell the story again, not for me, but for every other person who runs into someone who tries to exercise power over them like that, to show partly there is a way out of this. We make it out of this, and we persist. <laughs> do you think the world has changed? I mean, do you think, you know, somebody like uh, Professor Eugene Smith, you know, in this day and age you'd be able to say something or you'd be able to fight back against sort of a bad referral? Or do you think there's some element of that that's just still still there? And women are still having to make that decision? I think things have changed. Yeah. I think the odds that you could get a friend to help you would be a lot higher today than they were 40 years ago. But I am never critical of women who make different decisions about speaking up. Yeah. It's hard. And everybody has to kind of sort that through um, their own circumstances. It, it, it's about, like I said, this is not about sex. This is about power. Yeah. And, and but, but what I try to do through this story, what I try to tell by putting it out there in a lot of detail, is to say, 
you don't have to be a victim forever. You can, you can get some power. You can, you can stand up and maybe it takes 20 years, but you can do this. Yeah. I feel like it also illustrates how the um, incident that happens may not ever be the end of it. Yeah. You know, there, there is a, um, there can be like a lingering after effect, even if perhaps this person was never going to say anything about you. There's still this reminder out there of, I could, I could. Uh And that continues to be abuse, quite frankly. I I think you're exactly right on that point, Annie. You know, it fits nicely into the points I'm trying to make in the book about persistence, Mm -hmm. that you laugh and and say, you know, should Mitch McConnell, you know, get a a royalty because he's the one who put the word on it. He's the one who put the word on it. But it's something women have been doing for a long time, persisting. And it's something I, I talk about in the book, about the persistence that long predated my time in the Senate. And and how that persistence over time shapes who we are, but also shapes the the power that we have to make change. Um, You're right. This book is different from books I've written before, but it's very much a story, an optimistic story, a loving story of all that has happened and what we bring to these fights, but what we can do next, how much strength and power we have. Well, you you do talk about, you have a very optimistic sort of view of the primary process in this book that you lay out. Um, And I I found it to be, um, the anecdotes that you told about um, your sense of, you know, this primary as a sort of a cauldron of ideas. Um, And they, uh, 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 and and this is something that you were, um, you you, uh, believed not only, you know, when you were doing very well and when you were not doing so well. Um, And I was quite struck by the way that you sort of had an exchange with with Jay Inslee and was picking up plans from competitors. And I think people might not understand quite how that works to where somebody who's worked so hard on one thing would be willing to just say, well, yes, you take it. And so can you talk a little bit about your decision to to just to do to do that and and sit down. You um, spoke with I should say Governor Inslee and his wife in mm-hmm. um, Washington State. And how how are people when you know how are other candidates tend to how do they tend to be when you say well hey can I that thing that you've worked on really hard and staked your entire political life on can I actually just take it and have it become my thing too right and, and Julian Castro too. Yeah. Um, uh, Julian's terrific plans on childcare, among other things, picking up part of he, what he had done uh, on, on disability rights. Uh, and then, if I can, just playing it one more click. It's also what Joe Biden did with me, as I talk about in the book, how his called me out of the blue and said after the primary was over and said, I like what you did on bankruptcy. How would you feel? Would you be okay? If I picked it up in the very next day, he gets up and talks about it. So let me tell you why I think that happens, or at least I hope this is why. I saw this primary as 
a chance to put out a lot of ideas, ideas for our nation, ideas for our party, a, a chance to show the nation what was possible. And my 81 plans, I'm in love with them. I love them. I think about the differences we could make with every single one of them. I think that's exactly how Jay Inslee felt about his plans on how to combat climate change. And he did have some really good ideas. I know for a fact that is exactly how Julian Castro felt. And when Joe Biden called me and said, I want to pick up, he named one in particular, the bankruptcy one, I want to pick that up. He said, do you mind? And I, mind, I'm over the moon. Because it means that this process of running for office had something really good come out of it. It had new ideas that are going to roll forward. Uh, Part of why last week when the president said childcare during his address to the nation, man, I'm not only on my feet, I am ready to go. And look, I get it. Primaries can be contentious, and they are not all hearts and flowers at every moment. But we were all aiming in the same direction. We were all pushing toward the same kind of goal. And it was, it was an honor to be in that fight right alongside some terrific people. And yeah, I, I won't say I stole their ideas because they told me I could have them, but I was glad to do it. They were not stolen. They were uh, gifted. Yes, yes, gifted, I think is the, the word for it. Um, well, you, I'm glad you mentioned that you spoke with, with Joe Biden. Um, have you, what have your conversations been like with him since then? Have you, have you been in touch with him sort of throughout the general election and then now that he's president? So and how I, is that bankruptcy plan going? Is that going to become something that his administration pushes as well? So I don't want to talk about private conversations, um, but I think he's doing a really good job. I think he is meeting this moment. You know, it, people forget that in 2020, when the, we hit the general election, Joe Biden ran a very progressive campaign. He made a lot of very progressive promises uh, about, about child care, about Build Back Better, about taxing the rich to pay for it. But more than any other single thing, he made clear promises to have a strong enough government to meet the problems that the nation faced. He he contrasted, in my view, himself with Donald Trump along the dimension of saying he would he would be a competent president. And I, I do not mean that as anything other than the best compliment, mm-hmm. given where Donald Trump had been, that he would take seriously the act of governing. And the problems America faces when they're big then they require big solutions, and he would not be afraid of big solutions. Think about that promise he made early on, that he would deliver 100 million vaccines in the first 100 days. Now, as we know, he shot through that and then some, 
but it was a bold promise early on. And I always read it as not just about COVID, as about a statement to America that you will have a government that is on your side, that understands the scope of the problems and will come up with solutions that are practical and that will actually fix the problems. Yeah. And how long do you think the window is to, to, to enact some of that? I mean, you write in your book, um, in that fashion and forward, um, you say, we have a once in a generation mm-hmm. moment to do something new. How long does that window last? How long is that moment? So I don't know the number of days, but I know this, we have to deliver. We have to deliver. We have to deliver partly because we made promises as Democrats in 2018 and 2020. But we also have to deliver because now is the time we need to make these changes. We've got to attack climate change head on. This is an existential threat. If we want to have a productive economy, then we need to spruce up our infrastructure. We need to make some serious repairs and we need to make it so that women, mamas, can make it back into the workforce. Um, We need to get moving now. We can't let this drag out. Um, We need to show the energy and make it happen. And frankly, I think this is a good place where we are. I thought what we did around the rescue package was exactly right. We said, here's how big the problem is. Republicans, come on in. Tell us if you want to add other parts to the problem or if you think we got some part of this wrong. And here's how big the solution is to fix that problem. Republicans came in and said no, that they didn't want a big enough solution. And Joe Biden said, look, Democrats, Republicans, and independents all around the nation want to see us take these steps, want to see this rescue package. I declare that bipartisan. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to go forward. And he did. We didn't delay. And we need to do the same thing on this next round of packages. Um, We have a chance not just to repair our crumbling roads and bridges, which Lord knows we need to do that. We have a chance to expand broadband, which means more parts of the country can engage in small businesses, can be online. And we need to include childcare and elder care as part of infrastructure because we need that acknowledgement that for people to be able to work, what's happening at home matters. And and if we can make that click, then that's going to make a difference for generations and generations to come. But as as you point out, it's not guaranteed. It's, nope. it, Biden could take a different approach. He's um, signaled, in fact, that he's working um, uh, with moderate Democrats and trying to attract Republicans and that he's open to a smaller package, um, at least to have one piece of it be smaller. I mean, I do wonder if if these promises are not kept. Um, if this legislative agenda of Biden stops essentially or largely right now, um, would you run again? Oh, no. Uh, Joe Biden is running for re-election. 
uh, my job is to help him succeed as president. So it's off the table. Yeah. Okay. Right now, my focus is on the next hundred days. We have so much that we can and should be doing in this infrastructure package and this caregiving package. And we haven't even talked about it today in uh, S1 mm-hmm. and HR1 to protect voting and to root out corruption. Uh, we also have uh, police reform that we need to get through. And President Biden has charged Congress with getting this done before the first anniversary of the death of George Floyd. And he is right. These are the things that are urgent and upon us. And we have momentum. Why give it up? I I get that Mitch McConnell wants to slow us down, slow us down, slow us down. But the country needs this and the country is behind it. You know, this is one of the things that's so interesting to me. It's all this talk about labels and, oh, and the left and the progressives and so on. But the truth is that progressive package, rescue package that Joe Biden led and Congress passed is really popular. Mm-hmm. And the pieces of the infrastructure plan and the child care plan and wealth tax, those things are really, really popular as well. So it seems to me the folks who are out of step here are the elected Republicans in Washington, not Republicans across the nation, but the guys in Washington. And that Joe Biden, my job as a senator, his job as president is to do the things the American people need us to do and want us to do, and do it now. Um, well, I realize that we are kind of running out of time. Um, I actually, I have um, just one last question for sure. you. Um, it comes from my father who has um, who's followed your career quite closely over the years, and he's also a dog lover. Um, he was very struck, as many Americans were, by um, your decision to um, campaign with Bailey. Mm-hmm. And he's, of course, watched the Biden's dogs very move into the White House. And he just was curious um, on the campaign trail as Bailey was meeting and having his own selfie lines with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people. Did he ever nip anybody? No, not Bailey. Now, I do want to be clear. He shed on a lot of people. And his kisses are pretty slobbery sometimes. Uh, but uh, he he is a good boy. He's a good boy. Well, thank you very much, Senator Warren. I really enjoyed talking to you. You bet. And it's good to talk to you, Annie. Stay in the fight. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. You might be interested in another C-SPAN podcast, Book Notes Plus. Like our long-running Book Notes program, Brian Lamb has wide-ranging conversations with authors and historians. This 30-minute podcast is available every Tuesday. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.